Does your home have a staffing strategy in place? StaffStat automates your shift filling process and intuitively predicts shift needs. Plan A works in tandem with StaffStat, offering homes a backup staffing model that supports employees and keeps residents safe and cared for. Learn more at ltcstaffingstrategy.com. We need to make sure if rebuilding the long-term care workforce is a priority, we need to make sure they're not accessing wait lists when they put their their hands up for services. And we need to understand that those services need to be trauma-informed and need to be able to support people going through burnout and uh, for some, I imagine, PTSD. This is Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population, a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I am also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. During the COVID-19 pandemic, long-term care was stretched to its limits, navigating a perfect storm. Frail, vulnerable seniors, critical staffing shortages, old buildings with multiple people in rooms, and a virus that preyed on those who worked and lived in our care homes. Long-term care workers worked longer and harder than ever before, under constant threat of the deadly virus and tragically in the face of loss of life. Residents lost their freedom, unable to go outside or see visitors. Family members did not see their loved ones for months on end, and were often unable to be present when a loved one passed away. Stress and fear put great strain on an already fragile long-term care system. This stress of the pandemic has affected the mental health of millions of Canadians and millions around the world, but perhaps nowhere more than in healthcare and in seniors' care, where residents and staff and families have been traumatized. In this episode of Coming of Age, it is my pleasure to introduce Adrian Spafford, CEO of Addictions and Mental Health Ontario. We will be discussing the emergence of mental health issues as a priority in the pandemic, as well as what both individuals and leaders can do to support much needed mental health recovery. Adrian, welcome to the show. Donna, thanks so much for having me to the pod. I'm really excited. Adrian, you actually started out in our world. Uh, Long-term care has been devastated, not just in Ontario, but globally. We've had uh, almost 4,000 deaths in our long-term care homes uh, over the past 14 months. And I have to tell you, I must say that the parallels between our mental health and addictions worlds were pretty stark for me just coming into long-term care uh, not even two years ago since I started in this space. I never thought that it would take a global pandemic that was going to bring a light to shine upon both mental health and addictions and long-term care. If you go back 14 months, uh, where were we in terms of mental health and addictions? And I'd welcome your reflections on those parallels with long-term care as well. When it comes to before the pandemic, I have a lot of the same reflections as you. I find myself often reflecting on my time in long-term care when I do my work now on mental health and addiction, especially so in the residential aspects of our service delivery, like residential addiction 
uh, treatment programs or residential withdrawal management or high support housing. But I think where we were at before the pandemic was years and years and years of chronic underfunding, years and years and years of policy neglect, and really all that resides in stigma. And I think it's important we call out stigma for what it is. You know, I think stigma is, because I think if we just use the word stigma, we sort of get away from the root of the problem, which is fear. I think people stigmatize mental illness, addiction, and aging, and death for fear of that being themselves or a loved one. There's very much still a judgment that the behaviors, habits someone exhibits are a choice, whether to be well or not well with your mental illness or with your addiction. I think in aging and in long-term care, the judgment, my reflection which is maybe my lived experience is that the the judgment falls more so on families. You know, I think it's a very challenging time to think about um, the best place for a loved one, whether that's a parent, a grandparent, a sibling to be in long-term care. I think that means a judgment on an entire sector because really people feel as though they've failed when they go into long-term care, they feel they've failed their their family member. And so that's that judgment. You know, it's such a great point that you're making around failure and fear. So in both cases, we're dealing with an aging population in large parts, majority of people who, who are in our homes. Over 80% of the people in long-term care have some form of dementia and cognitive decline. Many of them have mental health issues as well. And quite honestly, we've all failed. Everybody wants to blame somebody else, but this is a global pandemic and the virus itself is invisible. So we're all looking for somebody else to blame. And yet we're not seeing our leaders even take responsibility for this. Uh, we're, We're now seeing investments, but, you know, we continue to see those who would point fingers when in fact you know, this shouldn't be about political opportunism. It really does need to be about what are we going to do to help real people? That's the thing. And I think either of our sectors are about one political party or another. In Ontario, anyways, you know, you can point back to all three political parties and where we've landed with long-term care and with mental illness and with addiction. And I think that speaks to what we as a population value. I think we are all responsible because if it mattered to the general population, it would matter to voters and then it would matter to political parties. When I think of aging, I think, boy, oh boy, I live in a geography that's really got it wrong. (laughs) Like I think of other cultures and, and maybe I'm sort of fantasizing, I don't know, but I think of other cultures like Asia or my brother-in-law, for instance, is a smiley and his family lives in Africa. And the whole, all of the generations of families live under one roof. That is absolutely not the reality 
for me, for my parents. That's not how, in my culture, we're not one where we're all going to live in one roof. And so what do we do then? So if the answer is not the family, then what is the answer? And clearly we've got that wrong right now. And look, long-term care, I would say, was the suffered from a funding perspective while there was a public policy to build up home care. Uh, but still, we don't have enough. And then we don't have robust enough funding for long-term care or a funding model that drives quality and drives positive client and family experience in long-term care. I want that feeling of growing up in a multi-generational family. I love my family. I want to be close to my family. But knowing that's not what we're going to replicate for my parents, for the generations of my family, what does public policy look like that replaces that same feeling? And it's a great question because, you know, we have to recognize too that with behaviors for people with mental illness and addictions, but also aging, people with dementia, in many cases, families cannot safely care for somebody in their home. And as they think about how do you support your family, your younger generation, but even your own health and well-being, how do you, how do we manage that? So Adrian, when we started just before the pandemic in Ontario, there were 36,000 people waiting for long-term care. Today, we have closer to 40,000 people waiting. We have lost about a third of our staff. We've been trying to recruit uh, registered nurses and personal support works workers to come into our long-term care homes. People don't want to work in our long-term care homes. How are we going to care for our aging population? So, you know, you've put the question about tomorrow. What do we do today? So what can government do? I think government can listen to organizations like yourself who have a good sense, I would imagine, of what is going on at the front line and what steps can be put in place to be able to support the front line. Because for those frontline workers who have experienced trauma or PTSD or are burnt out, you know, I'm not a physician, um, but my understanding is you're starting from a different place than someone who's not burnt out or has not experienced PTSD. So it might be a bit of a longer journey to get to the place where um, you're able to be learning new skills to be able to cope with that stress because you're starting from a deficit position. And so really getting access to the right providers is important. We need to make sure that for staff and directors of care and administrators of long-term care homes that when they are asking for support and the right support, that they're not facing wait lists. And you started this question with referring to wait lists for long-term care for people who want are ready to become long-term care residents. We face a very similar challenge with mental health and addiction, where some of the wait times for services for people in crisis are up to two years. We need to make sure if rebuilding the long-term care workforce is a priority, we need to make sure they're not accessing wait lists when they put their, their hands up for services. And we need to understand that those services need to be trauma-informed and need to be able to support people going through burnout and uh, for some, I imagine, PTSD. And I think 
all of us as people, what can we do to rebuild that workforce is, I think we all need to appreciate a lot more what role PSWs, RNs, RPNs, dietary aides, all of the people working in long-term care, those are our healthcare heroes. Those are our COVID heroes. And I think each and every one of us, um, I hope something that comes out of COVID is a lot more respect. I would say compensation too. I realize that might be controversial, but if we're going to overhaul the long-term care home system, that's got to start with the long-term care home workforce. And that's going to mean making it an employment choice of destination. As I reflect on the challenges that Adrian and I discussed with regard to long-term care, aged care, and mental health and addictions, there are remarkable parallels as we look at the lack of funding supports, restrictive policies, stigma, and fear, and lack of support from successive governments, regardless of their party affiliations. The pandemic has moved long-term care and mental health together to the forefront. There is a recognition of the trauma that our front lines have faced. Now is the time to ensure that our front lines, that our residents and families have access to the mental health supports that they need when they need them. As we move beyond the pandemic, access to mental health supports will be paramount, especially for trauma-informed services. We don't have time for two-year wait lists. We need to act now. As we move forward from COVID-19, how can we reimagine how long-term care thinks about mental health? How do we think about mental health more broadly and what needs to change? I think we're, we are doing a lot better at talking about our mental health struggles. I'm worried that there's a lot of people who are relying a lot more on substances and we're not talking about that. That's going to cause more harm and more healthcare challenges down the road, more harm for people. But if we're now getting to the place that we're comfortable opening up, about, you know, I'm feeling really anxious or I'm feeling really out of control or I'm feeling really, really depressed. You know, the worst thing that can happen when when someone (laughs) opens up is for someone to not get validation that 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 feeling is okay. And so I think what we can all do is be a lot more empathetic as people that if someone does open up to you, we have a tendency to want to solve that person's problem for them. I think holding space and listening to people, it's so hard not to be able to offer a hug, isn't it? You know, because I think that's the best, that's the best thing. <laughs> that's the best thing to do as a non-practitioner, as a, as a, as a human being, when someone expresses emotion, whether it's joy or sadness or anxiety or depression, to be able to give them a hug um, and sort of sit in that moment with them and be present in that moment with them. So I'm really, really looking forward to being able to hug my friends more 
So yeah, I'm glad we're talking about it more. We want to make sure that if we're talking about it more, that I think as a general population, we're all increasing our mental health first aid a lot more. That's such an important point is I've always thought about the future. So when I when I worked in the mental health space and, and I, as you know, Adrian, I, I continue to be a huge advocate. Um, yeah. And I and I agree, people are self-medicating. We we absolutely people are self-medicating right now. How do we bring back the humanity and and to your point, the empathy? Uh, I always dreamed of a day where Yes, you're going to need your your psychiatric hospitals for those with schizophrenia and and for those for those moments when they need acute care help. But if we could all imagine that when we go to school in elementary and secondary school, we we learn some mental health first aid, we learn some mental health literacy. When we're training managers, when you're doing your MBA, you're learning about how to support your teams with your in management courses and HR programs, daycare uh, uh, programming, uh, school teachers learn literacy. Imagine if we all learned that at different stages in our in our education. And that it then gets embedded in our our DNA somehow. In New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio made it his thing to build up something called Thrive New York City, where they did a lot on access to like the clinical high-end services, but then they did this huge amount on the promotion side completely outside of the healthcare system. So just like you're talking about. So clergy people from all religions could learn mental health first aid, as well as like very intro coaching skills around even CBT, like CBT informed coaching skills. And so the uh, same with the education system, same with the daycare system, like early years centers, new moms. And so basically the point was to build these touch points all over society to be able to both, it does a number of things, right? It, it intervenes as early as possible, which we know in any chronic condition means the best outcome. And it also makes it a lot scarier to ask for help. And then we can also all support each other a lot more. But, you know, then I think about so that's like the positive is that it's absolutely possible. And then I think about our current healthcare system and just talking about, you know, mental illness and substance for a while, but this would include, you know, psychogeriatric challenges. If someone comes into an emergency department on crisis, even if they're not experiencing aggressive behaviors, but let's say they're experiencing self-harm or suicidal ideation, and they it gets decided they get put on a form, that person gets taken to a room by a police officer, not by a healthcare worker, depending on the hospital. And what does that tell someone? Like, what does that tell someone about their condition? And this is not an anti-police statement. I just think, you know, if I came into the emergency department with a heart attack or with heart attack symptoms, 
you'd never get taken. They decided to admit you to the emergency. You wouldn't get taken there with the police officers. So I think, I think the stigma is also embedded in how we're replicating the criminal system in our healthcare system, in our social services system, children's aid, for instance. And so doing what they did in Thrive NYC is almost like the opposite of what we're doing right now with how many mirrors there are between our healthcare system and our criminal justice system when it comes to mental illness and substance behaviors. You know, it, it really is a time for rethink. You know, the fact that it that we turn to our justice system instead of to our healthcare system. Yeah. As I reflect on a, my discussion with with Adrian, really I'm touched by the need for us to find compassion, to find empathy, to acknowledge the trauma that each one of us has experienced over the the past months of the pandemic, recognizing the trauma that those on the front lines have faced in the face of mass death, in the face of loss, in the face of grief. How do we bring empathy, compassion? How do we put down the fingers to stop blame? How do we take a much more human and person-centered approach? Adrian spoke about Thrive NYC and the leadership of New York Mayor Bill de Blasio in bringing a much more biopsychosocial approach to embedding mental health supports into communities where we're supporting one another. How do we look at programs like this to problem solve? But also, how do we just bring kindness to the table, kindness to ourselves and kindness to others? We have to regain and refine the humanity in this. The villain in this has been the virus, and this is our moment to come together, to unite and support each other through recovery. What is the future of aging? And we do have this unique opportunity today, at this moment, to engage with our decision makers, to reimagining what the path of aging looks like where yeah. mental health and well-being is embedded in part of that. Absolutely. Like it's got to be at the core, but respect. And what does aging in place look like? You you talked about long-term care did not do well because there were over-focus in aging in place. It's, mm-hmm. it's not an either or, it's an and. No, no, exactly. It's an and. Exactly, exactly. You referenced the baby boomers earlier. My mom's in the first year of baby boomers. She turned 75 this year. And we have to hold those two things to both be true, that we need to build up home care or aging in place. And we need we need to build up capacity, quality, and dignity in long-term care. It absolutely cannot be an either-or proposition. And I would hope that while we're doing both, We are living by the notion that mental health is health, that healthcare also includes mental well-being. It includes dignified care for substance use, for addiction, and a recognition 
that any time of stress or transition is going to be a time that challenges all of our mental well-being, even those of us without a mental illness. And we need room uh, as a society to grieve. Yes. Yes, we do. We do. We're going to need that. We're going to need that space. I think the different sectors who have borne the brunt of this pandemic, long-term care in wave one and two, it's looking like acute in, in wave three, racialized communities, essential workers, people who couldn't work at home comfortably like you or me. I even add parents of young kids to the to that because I think it has been and and, and then also people who've been living completely on their own. We're going to need to grieve. We're going to need to come together. And I do hope that the silver lining of the pandemic is that these issues that have been uncovered, these systemic inequities that have been uncovered, including long-term care, including lack of access to mental illness and addiction, including horrible racial disparities, that hopefully there's enough of us that are committed to not recover because we need to do better than recover. We need to really be building, I don't want to use Joe Biden's terminology, but um, everybody knows what I want to say. (laughs) (laughs) Back better. You know, I I think that's the challenge. And one of my great privileges, though, is to be able to work with people like you and and to problem solve and to commit to continue to work with you and support each other. You've been an enormous support to me over the last 14 months and to the association. You're you're one of those phone calls (laughs) on a Friday night. (laughs) Yeah, we've had a few. We've had a few. But let's let's end on a note of hope. Because I too have that hope. Let's get moving because our kids need it and we need it. And I think there's global energy. The population understands now why changes are needed. And so the times to act. And, you know, I want to say every, you know, thank you for your leadership, um, for your uh, dedication to your sec to the sector, to the people who live in those homes, the people who work in the homes, um, for your friendship and camaraderie. You know, we've had, uh, um, we work in different sectors, but we've had similar jobs over the last 14 months. And uh, I know I appreciate so much um, you only being a phone call or a text away. We've shed tears together and, uh, and I really, I really am excited to see now what happens next. Well, let's do this. Let's do this. After speaking with Adrian, I feel more optimistic and hopeful about the future of our long-term care and where mental health will fit in that continuum. However, as discussed in the interview, there is urgency. We need to act now. Change won't happen overnight, but we have an opportunity to build on the progress we've experienced over the last months. Here's a summary of our conversation. First, the long-term care and mental health sectors are facing three key challenges today. In parallel, very similar sector profiles. Number one, 
both sectors have faced years of chronic underfunding, where the funding has not allowed the sectors to respond to the growing demand for services, nor the increased complexity of the people who require those services. Number two, policy neglect. Again, rigid policies created decades ago that have failed to be adapted and respond to the changing needs in our sectors. And number three, stigma, which Adrian brilliantly reframed as fear, fear of aging, fear of mental illness, fear of the invisible, including COVID-19, and fear due to lack of education and understanding. In order to reimagine our sectors post-pandemic, each of these challenges will need to be addressed. Let's address them together. Two, over the past year, frontline workers, family members, and residents have faced trauma on several fronts. Burnout, PTSD, anxiety, and fear are highly prevalent, resulting in a lack of trust in our long-term care sector. To restore and rebuild our long-term care sector and our aged care sector, we need to provide easily accessible mental health resources, services and supports, not wait lists, to our frontline workers, to our residents and to our staff. And we need to stop looking to the justice system as a model for mental health supports or behavioral supports. Mental health and long-term care both need to be career destinations, not places to avoid, and they need to be places of care. Third, empathy and compassion are key to combating mental health challenges. As Adrian mentioned, the worst thing that can happen to someone who opens up about their mental health struggles is not to be validated. We need empathy and compassion. We need to imagine a world where mental health is embedded in all that we do where mental health first aid is taught in high schools and leadership and management programs, in HR programs. We need to reframe the stigma around mental health and we need to ensure that more education is embedded everywhere in society, not just in healthcare. Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate the show five stars, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Read Adrian's insights on Twitter at AIDSBAFFORD, at A-D-E-S-P-A-F-F-O-R-D, or connect with her on LinkedIn by searching Adrian Spafford. You can learn more about addictions and mental health Ontario and their important work at amho.ca. AMHO.ca. Our next episode will be airing on July 6th. Until then, I'm your host, Donna Duncan.